Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 1 in 68 children in the United States have been diagnosed with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. Boys are five times more likely than girls to have ASD, and even though ASD can be diagnosed by age two, many children aren't diagnosed until after age four. One of the reasons ASD is sometimes identified late is because, as the name suggests, Autism Spectrum Disorder is defined by a set of behaviors that affect individuals differently and to varying degrees. One thing children with ASD have in common is that their disorder can be treated by a wide range of therapists who have individual specialties but overlapping goals. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, we'll talk to Christine Baxey, whose four-year-old son Sam is benefiting from a wide range of therapies and from physical therapist Lori Glumack, who is a member of the collaborative care team that helps children with ASD develop both physically and socially. Here now is our conversation with Christine Baxey and Lori Glumack. Lori, let's start with getting a sense of autism spectrum disorder and really the spectrum of that disorder. What are the range of symptoms across the spectrum and what are the commonalities across the spectrum? Well, autism spectrum disorder is it's a developmental disorder that results in challenges in the areas of social communication and behavior. By social communication, I'm not referring just to verbal language, but also to all those nonverbal forms of communication that we begin using as infants and continue throughout our lives, the eye contact, nonverbal ways of facial expressions, body language, getting the attention of another person, so that sort of thing. As far as the spectrum, children with autism spectrum disorder can range from gifted to children with severe challenges. There's a common quote uh, that I like very much that says, if you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. And that really brings home the point that a child with autism as well as a typically developing child is very unique and has his own strengths and challenges. So there are some stereotypes, though, built up maybe around autism. Are there common symptoms? I mean, you mentioned the challenge in communication, but as much as it's difficult to, to generalize with this condition, what are things that might be commonalities? Okay, there are common symptoms. They range mainly in the two areas, the first being social communication. As I said, the child from a young age may have difficulty getting eye contact and maintaining eye contact. They may have a preference for being alone. They may choose solitary play over play with their peers or their siblings. They may indeed have an interest in their siblings and peers but not know how to go about approaching them to get them involved in what they want to do. They may have difficulty adjusting their behavior to different situations. They may not understand that we behave one way at home, how we behave another way in a situation such as church. In the area of behaviors, they often show limited and repetitive behaviors. I think there is a stereotype of children with autism tending to maybe rock or flap their hands or spin. But again, this is that's a very individual thing, repetitive body movements. Other commonalities might be in the manner in which a child plays. Rather than playing in a creative way with a toy, they may prefer to line up the toys, you know, line up cars. 
or they may show rigid patterns of play. Like if they do a puzzle, they may want to put in the components of that puzzle in the same order every time. Like if it's an alphabet puzzle, they might want to go to A to Z. And if that G is missing, you know, then that could be really problematic for the child because you know they have a specific way of doing it. Another commonality might be that children with autism may have a short attention span for non-preferred activities, while at the same time they can become very hyper-focused on their own interests. They may have a strong preference for a certain TV show, a certain video. They might like to repeat lines from that video. And then maybe one other example would be that children with autism may show differences in the reaction to sensory input. For example, they may only like to wear clothing made out of certain material or perhaps the tags can be very irritating. Or it might be a challenge to get their hair cut or hair washed or teeth brushed because these sensory experiences are interpreted differently by these children. So those are some of the perhaps the commonalities that we see in the two specific areas of diagnoses. And those examples definitely underline how individualistic it is, not only in how many there are, but how many of those symptoms sound like kids being kids in many respects. So let's meet a child with autism spectrum disorder. Christine, your four-year-old son Sam was diagnosed with ASD a few weeks after his second birthday. Before you tell me about Sam today, what were the symptoms you noticed early on that led to that diagnosis? For us, as I think for many parents, our first red flag was when Sam shortly after his first birthday, still didn't have any words. He wasn't talking. And some parents may mistake that for just my son or daughter's a late talker. But when we looked at some of the other symptoms, like not being able to get Sam's attention, Sam wouldn't respond to his name, the eye contact certainly had diminished. It was the totality of those symptoms that said to us, there's something wrong here. So when he was 15 months, we had discussed this with our doctor, with Sam's pediatrician, and he recommended that we seek a consult from what we refer to in Pennsylvania as early intervention services, so a group of therapists that will provide services for children ages birth through age three. So we had a round of therapists coming into our home and did an evaluation of Sam and found that he was delayed across a rubric. And so they recommended that he start to receive services so that by 18 months he was on early intervention services and he began receiving speech therapy, occupational therapy, and developmental therapy, or a therapist who specializes in teaching him how to play appropriately. As you started seeing these symptoms, how much did you know about ASD at the time and how much were you learning as you were going? Oh, I didn't know anything at all. As Lori mentioned, I probably knew the stereotypical things associated with autism, ranging from the arm flapping through just sheer genius with some children. So my knowledge, what didn't go deeper than that? I probably made the mistake of reading too many things online and became very fearful about what may be to come for Sam. But certainly going through the early intervention process with him, which was primarily a home-based process, I learned a great deal from our therapists and knew then what we had to do going forward. What did you think was ahead for Sam at that point based on too much online reading or your kind of natural motherly fears? It was a tough time for my husband and I. I mean, that initial consultation, we refer to it now, is probably the worst day of our life. You had these therapists come into your home and evaluate 
who you thought was your typically developing child and then ask all of these questions that you kept answering no. You know, does he point and direct you to objects? No. Does he hold your attention? No. Does he talk? No. And saying no all those times is very emotional because you see your child is perfect. So to realize that there's something very wrong here was a very, like I said, a very emotional time for us. We didn't know anybody on the autism spectrum. We didn't know any parents. We didn't know what to expect. And so it seems like it changes pretty quickly from that into, you mentioned all of a sudden he's seeing sort of an array of people to help him. Walk me through, you know, he was two then, he's four now. Take me through his therapy journey over those years. As I said, he began early intervention services at 19 months. And so through age three, he received speech and occupational therapy, sometimes in the home, but most often in his preschool. And I should mention, he is able to be in a mainstream preschool, early intervention at 19 months. It was at that point where we had an occupational therapy working on some of his sensory needs. Sam initially liked to what we would call mouth objects, and you see that a lot in infants, but he was still doing it at an older age. And so it was thought that he was a sensory seeker. He he sought sensory input on his mouth, his hands. And so the occupational therapist was critical in helping Sam meet his sensory needs in more appropriate ways and in teaching us and his preschool teachers how he needed to get his sensory needs met in order to then focus on learning. A great example would be if you're hungry, and it's really hard to focus on things when you're hungry. Well, for Sam, he couldn't focus until maybe he got a little bit of joint compression and he jumped a little bit. It just feels good to him. So once those sensory needs were met, he was then able to focus on learning. We also had a developmental therapist who would show Sam how to play appropriately with toys, not just put them in his mouth or line them up, but to play with toys as they should be played with. And that service was primarily offered in the home. And then, of course, the speech therapist was working on speech communication and trying to encourage him to vocalize and to even approximate words. And so that team was with him through age three. And then at that point, at age three, he transitioned to the intermediate unit. And again, we live in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure what other listeners would call it, but this is an intermediate unit that works with children at three and then through school age. And so again, we have a speech therapist, an occupational therapist. Developmental therapist is now called inclusion. And all of these services are provided in his preschool. So it's really the same goals, only trying to meet Sam's school readiness needs and also help him engage better with his peers, to seek out peers, to want to play with peers and not just tolerate them. So that's kind of where we are now. I should also mention that we do seek some private therapies. We have an aqua therapist that we work with, a physical therapist who provides therapy to Sam in the pool. And we also have another speech therapist who's working on a lot of the motor communication issues with Sam because it's thought that he might have something called apraxia, which is a physical delay in his jaw and other movements that are required to speak appropriately. So we have this whole team working with him. At one point in our journey, we tried music therapy, and for several reasons that just didn't work with Sam at the time, but I think he's at a place now where for the vast majority of his life, he's had therapists in his life. He's been on some service or other, and so I think he might be more accepting of other therapists in his life now. 
Another critical therapy for Sam is applied behavioral analysis, ABA. It's something that he started at age two after he was diagnosed. And it's been a very vital part of his therapy services. And parents listening to this right now will know that ABA is a very effective way of encouraging development in children with autism. So, Lord, before we talk about Sam specifically, as I listen to Christine talk about all these therapists who are in Sam's life, some of them seem so obvious. You know, for a child with communication issues, of course, there's a speech therapist. But where, broadly speaking, again, without really talking about Sam, where do physical therapists come in for children with ASD? Well, physical therapists come in because even though motor delays and motor impairments aren't part of the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder, research has shown that the majority of children with autism actually do have motor delays and motor impairments. Sometimes, as you said, speech is more obvious and other areas are more obvious, but the motor impairments do tend to show up especially when the child enters preschool where the demands uh, become greater. And some of the areas that we see some of the motor differences in children with autism are we do see delays in motor milestones. Uh, for example, a child may be delayed in sitting or walking or jumping or any of those, those major motor skills. We often see differences in gait. The child might tend to walk on his toes or he might not have the balance and coordination that other children have when walking. He might have difficulty on the grass or on an uneven playground surface. Another motor skill that physical therapists become involved in along with the rest of the team is developing imitation skills. Because as, as you know, people learn by imitating. If you don't know how to do something, you watch somebody else do it, and you do it. Well, for a child with autism, it's not that simple. And a lot of these motor skills really need to be broken down into tiny little steps and to be taught individually and practiced and have lots of opportunities for practice and embedding that practice into the daily routine. Other areas that the physical therapist may become involved with are coordination and balance. An example of this might be a child with autism may be able to play on playground equipment if they're the only child there, you know, supervised by the parent. But when you get classmates and peers on the playground also becomes more crowded, that child might not have the balance and coordination to play with those people in his space. And it might become sort of a scary process, and as a result, the child might not want to participate. Other areas that physical therapists become involved in, one it would be motor planning, and that would be if a child's presented with a new task, how does he think about it in his head and actually execute that task? So learning a new motor skill might be a challenge. And a few other areas as far as posture control, those core muscles that mainly in the trunk that we use to support our body to perform fine motor and gross motor skills in daily life. In children with autism, those may be weaker and they can impact not only motor skill performance and participation, but also can impact speech because all of our trunk muscles are also respiratory muscles, and so those are big contributors to breath support necessary for speech. And then one other area that we become involved with is body and spatial awareness. And again, I can give you an example of this. From a school setting, now one of the requirements or participation skills that children do in a school setting is they learn to walk in line. And you might think, well, what's to walking in line? But for a child with autism, that can be a challenge because they may not understand that you need to stand behind a particular person and then you need to maintain your visual focus on that person. You need to follow that person. You need to maintain your correct space, you know, not bump against them, not lag behind. And if that 
person you're following speeds up, you have to speed up, and if you slow down, you have to slow down. You know, all those skills involved in that simple task of walking in line. Motor skills don't necessarily stand on their own just as motor skills, but a lot of motor skills are essential for social participation. And that's really the area that physical therapists focus on. It's not just the motor skill itself, but how can the child use this motor skill to foster their participation in their daily routines at home and at school and in the community. So you just talked about so many different things there, and I want to key in on that for a second. For a child that has difficulty in the first place imitating others or may have difficulty in the first place kind of interacting in a physical space with others, how then, as a physical therapist, are you working with them individually? Are you working with them in a group setting? And how do you build those things in? Is it through play? How does that all happen to improve all those things you talked about, from motor skills to balance to socialization? I'd say all of the above. When you start out teaching a skill, it may be one-on-one. Let me give the example of learning to throw and catch a ball, which is something that children typically participate in with their peers. You may start out one-on-one, teaching that child how to place their hands, starting with a little softball that they're not afraid of, variety of ball tests. And when you've mastered that skill one-on-one, the next thing you want to do is you want to bring a peer in. So you want it to be the child and the peer and the therapist. And then you want to fade off the therapist so it's the child and the peer. So you're gradually introducing that same motor skill to a larger group setting that will more normally mimic what the everyday routines of that child are. So Christine, you mentioned Sam's doing aquatic physical therapy. Tell me what that looks like. Our last therapy session on Wednesday, the therapist has Sam in the water and After he's gotten excited about being in the water and has had an opportunity to swim freely for a bit, she'll then ask him to follow directions by swimming from one end of the pool to the next. She'll incorporate some of the things that he's working on in school, like matching colors, following directions. She has different colored objects, and then he has to match them with the same colored object at the other end of the pool. So it's working on the physical strength of swimming, getting him used to the range of motion of swimming, just it being a pleasurable sensory experience, but then also placing demands on him so it becomes a learning environment as well. And so, you know, we talked about the socialization aspect. Is that a big part of the driver for you for this is to make sure that he's not held back physically so that therefore he's not held back socially? That's correct. My husband and I want to give Sam every shot at participating in things that typical children do, playing catch, riding a bike, riding a scooter, swimming, hide-and-seek on the playground, playing appropriately with playground equipment. And so it was important for he and I to introduce physical therapy to make sure he is at the level of his peers. It's going to be very important for him to give him confidence that he could play with his friends. And so the physical therapy and everything he's doing in the pool and everything Lori is doing with him at school on the playground is going to give him that confidence that he could play with them. And so, you know, Sam's developing on two fronts, right? He's developing as a child with ASD who's going through therapy, and he's also just developing as a kid, as any kid would. So in that sense, I guess it's hard to pinpoint one thing or another when he's doing all these activities. But how much development have you seen in Sam as he's been going through all these things? Is he interacting with children better? Is he more confident? What are you seeing in Sam? We're thrilled to report now that Sam has acquired some words, and he's vocalizing more. He's using more approximations for words. All of that started once he began to imitate. 
imitation is such a foundational key in learning and learning from others. And so once we saw him imitating some of the things that my husband and I would do, we knew that maybe some words would follow, uh, verbal imitation then. So that's where we are now, and that's been about six months since we've started to see some of those key imitation skills. He's grown by leaps and bounds. We often look back at the child Sam was a year ago and think about the things he wasn't doing. And now we just have so much hope for him for the future in terms of being able to communicate better, play better with his friends at school. Just his ability to focus and learn has grown exponentially. And we hear from his teachers and even some other parents who have observed him, you know, through the years, just saying how amazed they are at the growth and development of Sam. And that's, you know, a great credit to the very committed therapists and teachers who work with him every day. And, you know, to the commitment my husband and I and love that my husband and I have for him and hope for his future. I want to ask both of you this question, but I'll start with you, Christine. Do you and your husband do anything to encourage Sam's imitation? I mean, is that a skill you can basically encourage? We do. And once he started to show signs that he was imitating us, everything we do really at home is trying to encourage him to imitate us. I'm trying to think of an example, potty training. He's a very captive audience when he's, you know, in the bathroom, and so we'll try to introduce music and get him to clap because he's there. Lori, could you think of a good example of some of the imitation he's doing now? Absolutely, because that's something that we all stress, and it's something we really work together as a team. One of the strategies that I've started and shared with the team is everybody's familiar with a high five and a fist bump and uh, as a reward or good job, and that's something that Sam could do, and I thought, well, let's build on that. So after a successful activity, we'll do let's do a high five, let's do a fist bump, and then be expanded on that. We do let's do a finger bump. So that's isolation of the index finger, which is a good skill. And then let's do a thumb bump, and then let's stand up and do a toe bump because that will encourage single leg stance. So we go through all the body parts with that. And then also in the area of imitation skills, the way that we often work on that in preschool is through activities and imitations to songs. So that's just the perfect opportunity to work on these skills. And the pace of the class might go very fast, so Sam benefits from working on those imitation skills first individually. And to make it even more of a challenge, since Christine said, you know, Sam has a lot of good gross motor strengths, and one of those strengths is, is his dynamic balance is good. So he'll sit on a therapy ball or on a tea stool while we're doing all the motions to the songs. And then also we can introduce music. You know, you can sing, if your name is Sam, and we'll start with easy things, clap your hands, and then we'll get into much more complicated uh, imitations. And then we'll also, of course, include vocalizations because all team members are really emphasizing vocalizations and speech. So we, I think we all work on it in our own way, in a fun way. So that gave me a good example of imitation at home for Sam. Now that he's acquired some of those imitation skills, it's been tremendously helpful as my husband and I teach him self-help skills. So putting on his own socks. Mommy's going to do it. Watch Mommy. Now, Sam, you put on your sock. Even something like brushing his teeth. If he's imitating me making the ah sound and opening my mouth, then he does it and it's easier for him to brush his teeth. So the imitation has been so key in so many facets of his life, learning, and also now these very critical self-help skills that he's going to need as he gets older and advances through school. 
Christine, how important is it to you? You have all these therapists working with Sam. How much interaction do they have to have between them? How does that work? How are you able to keep them progressing? There seems like there is so much overlap in a positive way. Do you need to do anything to keep them communicating with one another, or is that handled already on its own? Well, Sam has, I believe it's eight therapists working with him every week, and so communication is vital. None of the services are given in a silo. So speech is not just speech. The speech therapist has to communicate with the occupational therapist and share what is working, what is not working, maybe something new that has motivated Sam to learn. The communication has to be bridged. And so I've taken on that role in bridging that communication with the therapist. Going back to the early intervention model where we had an OT, a speech therapist, a developmental specialist, they're all contracted by separate companies. So there isn't one meeting that's convened on a regular basis so everyone could come to the table and share stories about what Sam's working on. So it's very important for parents to take on that role as the bridge to keep everybody on the same page, whether it's regular phone calls, emails to say, you know, this worked really well this week, you know, Sam had a difficult week maybe with this task, and to keep everybody on the same page. Now that we're in the intermediate unit model and there's many more therapists working with him, both in school, privately, it's even more critical that that communication is in place. And so, again, it often falls on the parents to bridge that communication to everyone. And then when you're fortunate like us, when you have therapists who are willing to communicate with the Aqua PT and what they're doing, what are the goals, what has been working for Sam, that just only makes the process that much smoother, and it's to the benefit of the child. Lori, Christine's obviously very engaged. From a physical therapist's perspective, when you're dealing with parents who have a child that has ASD, what tips would you give a parent like Christine, you know, to help you as a physical therapist get the information you need or the support that you need at home? Well, I think that goes two ways. First of all, I always like to communicate to the parent that they're a parent first. They're not a little mini-therapist at home, and they shouldn't be tasked with 10 activities that I recommend that they do at home. As far as recommendations to parents, I think that to learn new new skills, children with autism often need increased practice opportunities. And the important thing that I try to convey to parents is this isn't something to do as a separate therapy activity, but these practice opportunities need to be embedded into everyday routine. So how can you use the bathroom routine? How can you use free play routine? How can you use dinner time? How can you use getting ready for bed? How can you embed practice trials of different skills into those routines. That was what I think would be the key message I would like to share with parents. Therapy isn't a separate thing you have to practice, but it's something you want to embed into the family's everyday routines. And if I could just address something that Lori just brought up, that parents need to be parents and not therapists. And it's something that my husband and I struggled with. We currently do, but especially early on, a practitioner once said to me that if Sam's not engaged, he's not learning. And so I took that to heart and almost in a hypersensitive way, and I was at every point of Sam's home life, he had to be engaged in something, engaged in learning, and it took its toll. You know, I needed to sit back and say, Sam also needs to be a two-year-old or a three-year-old and do what he would like to do, engage in free play. I didn't need to be charged with keeping him on task all of the time. 
And so I think a lot of parents struggle with that because, you know, you do have these notes from therapists at school and say, try this at home or here's how you could reinforce what we're trying to do at home. Sometimes home turns into a sterile environment and home is not just home. And so we're always battling that. What is good for Sam in terms of letting him play as he wants to? And then, but how do we balance that with, you know, creating learning opportunities at home for Sam too? So, Christine, that's one thing you know now that you didn't know two years ago. Are there any other things that stand out like that where, you know, if you're if another parent of a child with ASD is listening to this right now, what would you have told yourself two years ago if you could go back? So many things. But I think most importantly, if I could talk to myself three years ago, it would be to know some of the developmental milestones that should have been met. It was brought to our attention that pointing a finger and a child leading your attention somewhere is part of an advanced level of engagement. And this is at the infant level and maybe close to year one. Sam wasn't doing that. I wasn't aware that that was such a critical thing. I don't know, growing up when I pointed my finger, I was told not to point my finger. <laughs> so um, I, I never realized, you know, how many things, how many signs there were along the way that maybe some developmental milestones were being missed. I mean, there's the typical milestones. You know, did Sam roll over by a certain age? Check. Did Sam sit up by a certain age? Check. Did he walk by a certain age? Check. And those are the things that even pediatricians focus on. And so as we're going through year one, we're thinking, oh, well, he's doing great. He's advanced in this area and everything's fine. But like I said before, until the words weren't there, you know, that's the tangible you could mark, that you could measure. Some other things are very subjective, but when the words weren't there, that was our big red flag. So if I can go back and tell myself something to watch for, it would certainly be to watch for those earlier developmental signs. So you've hinted at this several times throughout, but let's close with this. First, describe what Sam is like today, and then what are your hopes for his future? What do you think that picture looks like right now? He is a very loving, affectionate child. Everyone comments on how happy he is and how willing he is to learn, how cooperative he is. Sam really doesn't have a bad day. He wakes up happy. He goes to bed happy. He's so compliant. He's just a wonderful child. And, of course, you would expect to hear that from any mother. <laughs> but, you know, it, it just makes us realize how fortunate we are that he is the way he is. Like I said, he's come a long way with his therapies. You know, we're so thrilled that we see this imitation and this willingness to learn and focus, and we feel like we could just do more things with him now. He travels well. He's great in different situations. He behaves at restaurants. It's all very good in those ways. I think what our focus is going forward is just making sure he's ready for school, working on school readiness, so handwriting and all those requirements that you need to enter kindergarten. Long term, we want to make sure he could lead an independent life. So it's why we're pretty aggressive with therapies and making sure that we do everything we can at this very early age to make sure that he has everything he needs to lead a full and independent life as an adult. So that's our long-term goal. Lori, do you have any take-home messages from parents of children with ASD? I would really like parents to know that research shows that early intervention really does work. And also wanted parents to know that physical therapists, that's PT, I can say this, we are expanding our role and our visibility in intervention for children with autism. So out of the many ASD resources out there for parents, physical therapists are one of those resources. And lastly, I'd like to say that the team approach is so critical to intervention. 
with children with autism. We professionals, we're not operating in isolation. And as Christine said, we work very closely with one another. We communicate with one another. We don't cover individual goals. All the goals are Sam's goals, and we all support all of those goals. And that's what makes the intervention such a success is that we do have such a strong team approach. And Christine, how about you? Yeah, I'd tell parents, be a sponge. Take in as much information as you possibly can. Attend conferences if they're available. Speak to your therapist about other services that might be available. Even look into your insurance plans and see what is covered and don't leave anything on the table. Lori Glumack, Christine Baxi, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can learn more about autism spectrum disorder at moveforwardpt.com, at autism-society.org, and at cdc.gov. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.